Strategic Financial Partners presents the Rush Hour Podcast, where the rubber meets the road on the economy, stock market, and personal finance. Now here's your host, Matt Rush. Welcome to the Rush Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rush, and I'm really excited about today's program because today we're going to focus on blockchain and Bitcoin. Cryptocurrencies in general have become a bit of a phenomenon with Bitcoin standing front and center. Joining me today to discuss this is Dominic Nolan, the Senior Managing Director of Pacific Asset Management. Dominic heads Pacific Asset Management, a $15 billion asset manager specializing in traditional credit investments. Prior to joining Pacific Asset Management in 2008, Dominic was a Vice President at Lombardia Capital Partners, and before Lombardia Capital, he was Vice President and Product Manager for LM Capital Group. He has over 21 years of industry and investment experience, holds a bachelor's degree in business finance from Cal State Fullerton, and an MBA from the Anderson School of Management at UCLA. He is a CFA charter holder and a member of the CFA Society of Los Angeles. Dominic, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. So before we get into everything, he asked that I provide you with the disclaimer, and it is the following. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by Dominic Nolan do not necessarily reflect and are not intended to be the official policy or position of Pacific Asset Management and should not be construed as an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. So, Dom, the one thing that I did not mention there is that you are also the host of the podcast, Getting Credit. So, nice nice to have a fellow uh, podcast host on the show. Likewise, and this is actually my first time being a guest on a, a, another podcast. So, new endeavor for me. Very good. Well, people are fascinated with price movements. They're, they're intrigued by the possibilities of Bitcoin and blockchain, but I feel like there's so much confusion as to what blockchain is, what Bitcoin is. Today, I think that we can really begin to demystify Bitcoin and blockchain and give our viewers a new lens in which they can look at this space. So why don't we get into some of the background and the elements of blockchain? Sure. Happy to do that, Matt. And again, like you, I was very curious in learning more about crypto assets and blockchain and ended up doing a pretty lengthy podcast on it. So I was the interviewer not that long ago and learned a ton. So more than happy to share my observations and takeaways from the lengthy research and experience I've had. And I would say, though, my experience is pretty limited relative to the folks that have been in it for 10 years. But I'm more than happy to kind of summarize a lot of these high-level takeaways and and thoughts on it, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I think for me, some of the things that are uh, curious positions around around blockchain specifically is, is the fact that it's it's more of a a decentralized um, currency. It, it's it's also digital. So speak speak to what that actually means from a decentralization standpoint, and also the fact that it's it's digital money. Sure, and, and a good way to think about cryptos, at least where I've anchored it to is you think about the internet 30 years ago, that is the internet is decentralized. Nobody owns it. You know, people can control websites, but there is not a government or entity that owns the internet. It was a medium, a medium to, to really display information. To me, blockchain provides a decentralized structure 
to transact. So when you think about those two parallels, it gets really fascinating. And at the base of it, so at the base of Bitcoin is a construct called blockchain. And if you go back, you know, it's, there's a white paper, it's nine pages. I read it by Satoshi Nakamoto in October of 2008, which in thinking about that, that was right in the middle of the financial crisis. And essentially what the white paper says, blockchain is going to be a, a purely a peer-to-peer version of electronic cash. So that is the the thesis of this nine-page white paper on Bitcoin and blockchain. Blockchain allows for the construct of this. And I think in the end, what blockchain is, one, it's a public ledger. There is no singular owner. So that decentralization to transact is hugely important because when you think about how we transact cash, you know, banking, for instance, if I write you a check, Matt, and I use Wells Fargo, maybe you use B of A, it takes time to clear checks. And, and that you think it's it's still pretty antiquated and say, some would argue analog world when it comes to banking. Now they have since merged and there are more digital networks. If I Venmo you or use Zelle, you know, Venmo for instance, that's pretty clean. It's digital, it's very quick and very low cost. But the downside of Venmo is if you, you really can't Venmo someone that's outside of the Venmo network. So from the standpoint of just how we currently transact assets today, it's, it is pretty dated when you really think about that. So blockchain comes along and says, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make a system that is very quick, very low cost, open 24-7, and the ledger is owned by everyone. And essentially, the genius of what Bitcoin had created in blockchain is the incentive is for people to, they're incentivized to keep up the ledger. And when I think about that, it's you have these computers or nodes that they call them all over the world that are keeping track of the transactions. So there isn't really any one computer that has to validate if you want to pay me something or I pay you something. Everyone has to kind of confirm that. And even though one, I think one node may take that and verify that. If there's any conflict, other nodes will come in or computers come in and say, that's not valid or that's valid. And so you have this ledger and they put all these transactions into a block. And then once this block is sort of closed, then they move on to the next block. And, and essentially the computer that, that starts the next block is incentivized to because they're rewarded. They're rewarded with another coin. And hence that's how we get the term the block and then the chain of blocks. So that is that is the unique construct. And if you think about what it is doing, it is it is putting it in a construct that that removes the need for one entity to be the trust the exchange of trust. So what happens is trust is replaced with proof. And when you think about that. You know, we tr- I use Venmo, I use Wells Fargo, I use B of A. We all have to trust those institutions to validate a transaction. And that is now being slowly disintermediated to where now it's just proof. Matt, if I want to send you money, there is a network of thousands and thousands of ledgers that say Dom has that money that I can send to you. And it is, when you think about it at a base level, that is very disruptive. And so that 
decentralization is for intermediaries is really at the base of what disruption is about. Um, and, and I think when you look through to a couple of the topics, one, rapid, low cost, 24-7. So there are no banking hours. When you think about a fee, and I'll give you April of last year. So April of 2020, there was actually a transaction for more than a billion dollars on the blockchain. It took place in 10 minutes. And the transaction cost was 68 cents. When you think wow. about when you think about in, in the world we live in, if I wanted to send you a billion dollars, I'd have to use probably an international wire system or Fed wire system. The time is a lot more time, a lot higher fees. And if it's cross-currency, you know, you're having percentage points shaved off of that, which on a billion dollars, that could be it's in the millions. So it is something when you think, and, and by the way, even more amazing said, oh, by the way, this was transacted by a network, not a company, with zero employees. So that that element to exchange to financial exchange or to exchange value is at the core of this and very significant. And some other things that blockchain does does add is it adds the concept of digital ownership. You know, when we think about physical ownership, that is, you know, we own cash or a house or a car, but it digital ownership is something that has been created by blockchain. And you're going to start to hear more and more about something called NFTs, um, non-fungible tokens. And I'm just starting to get my head around the NFT element. But if you think about a lot of things that we are surrounded with in the physical world that really don't have any tangible value, I'll give you, you know, art is just, art is one, sports, cards, baseball cards. I, I grew up collecting baseball cards, physical baseball cards as a kid. Uh, yep. autog autographed sports memorabilia items. I know the video game industry. So I thought about like, what if you know, you're in these, this video game and an Excalibur sword comes up and you say, oh, well, that's built in the game. Well, in theory with blockchain, you can have a certain user own that and can actually transact that electronically. So the concept of digital ownership is going to start to come in more and more. And that element of NFTs, it's starting to have a, a movement there, but you're starting to see transactions around digital art that it's hard for me to get my head around and close the loop, but I just think we're going to see a lot more of that. And even beyond that, digital contracts. And I know that the guest I was interviewing, he was working with a bank that essentially is working with a title company. We think about it, you know, when we buy a house, for me to, we have to pay this title insurance as part of escrow. And this title insurance, you know, it's, there's some fees in there. Well, all you're doing is paying for a trusted intermediary to verify the title is clean. I view that as there's some pretty high costs in there for something that is largely unnecessary. At the same time, though, blockchain eliminates the need for that, quote, title insurance. That's just one application of it. So to the element that you're talking about around, you know, that disruption, I just want to share some of that, some of that perspective with you. I came away with the notion that blockchain in and of itself is a massive disruptor. We won't know what the applications will really manifest to, but I think blockchain is absolutely legit. Yeah, no, it, def it definitely sounds like that. that's where the real intrinsic value is and something like that. I mean, you're talking about digital art, 
digital contracts. That I think that's just going to be a game changer across so many different spaces. Correct. Yes. Yes. So dive, dive in a little bit deeper into Bitcoin specifically. I think one of the the big pros for, for Bitcoin is the flat is the fact that it's um, scarce. There, there's only a limited amount of, of coins out there. I believe it's 21 million coins. Uh, talk about that for just a second. Where are we now? Um, you know, it, how, how does that? How does that portray itself into the real world? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, you and I have had some conversations about it being deflationary. So expand on on that thought a little bit. Sure. It, and I think they, if you start with the blockchain foundation, then you have Bitcoin's role in that world. And my opinion, the Bitcoin's real role is around scarcity. And you mentioned 21 million. So that's the amount of Bitcoin that the max that will be in circulation at some point in the future. Where we sit today is around 18 and a half million Bitcoin in circulation. So there's still another two and a half million, but that's also going to be, I think that's released over the next hundred plus years. So there is a, there's a time element that's thought out for a century actually on this Bitcoin. And to me, that's the real, the real value is that's the real number. It, it cannot go beyond 21 million or else the entire thesis is kind of cracked or broken. So that scarcity level creates essentially what is deflationary. And again, it, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but if we think about the cost of something in the future, so if we were to buy an asset today in dollars, in theory, 10 years from now, we would buy that expecting that it would be worth more dollars, which is, if you use that, that would be inflationary. And the Bitcoin situation, that should translate into something where it would take less Bitcoin to buy that same asset in the future because of the scarcity element of Bitcoin. And that's the, the genius part of Bitcoin in there is, is the incentive structure and in that there are those computers, again, keeping track of the ledger. And the cost, actually, the incentive is to actually add integrity to the ledger rather than try and corrupt the ledger. And that is what the, a proof of work concept. So why do I want to? Why would I rather, you know, add integrity to the ledger? Because I'll probably end up making more economically in that proof of work either through getting a Bitcoin, mining a Bitcoin through that proof of work, or getting a transaction fee. So what happens is I think once the once the Bitcoin has hit in circulation for that period, then then you'll get paid with transaction fees. So if we take that. A step further and say, all right, so Bitcoin's role, you know, scarcity is a big part of that role of Bitcoin. I think when I when I've thought about it, I think, okay, so Bitcoin doesn't really, it's very difficult to transact Bitcoin in small elements. Meaning if I were to use it to pay for coffee, there's too many variables there. It's from the uh, the volatility of Bitcoin from the amount of time it takes or the number of transactions that the network can actually do at a time, small casual transactions doesn't work optimally. Also, high frequency, in my opinion, doesn't work. It, it, that's not optimal because there are, there are some smaller transaction fees with Bitcoin. So it ends up being the real value to me is around large, large sums lower transactions, which translate to what you'll hear is a store of value. So Bitcoin's Bitcoin's role in this blockchain world is it, it is a store of value, which equates to what we hear of as 
digital gold. And when I think about both Bitcoin and gold, both have very little intrinsic value. I think, you know, obviously we have jewelry that's gold, but in general, gold doesn't have physical applications or very, very low value in that. Neither does Bitcoin. No real intrinsic value there. So it is, to me, I view it as a physical world versus a digital world. Gold, you know, physical gold versus digital gold. And then you start to look into, all right, well, what's the best way to really store value? Gold can be very tricky. Gold has some awkwardness to it. It is, you know, physically storing the gold in large sums. It's hard to carry. Gold is hard to transact. It's hard. Here's an ounce or a fraction of an ounce where you can divide Bitcoin up on that digital side. And so I, I, I view Bitcoin very much as this, to me, Bitcoin's a currency with commodity properties and that it is, it's finite, whereas gold, gold does have additional production. Gold is added into the world every year. Bitcoin has a finite amount. And even though there's more Bitcoin coming in, there is, we know there's a cap. And also, Bitcoin is now ubiquitous, which, you know, gold, it took centuries. Bitcoin is now at a point where they call this this network effect, where the network effect is hard to overcome. And, and for those that don't know what I mean by network effect, if you, if you think about, think about Apple, I mean, is it possible for a company to create a technology or a phone that's better than Apple? Sure. You can create a phone that's better than the iPhone. Good luck cracking into the network of iPhone users because, you know, there's so much around the, the, the culture and, and the interaction of iPhones across that network that it's almost impossible to crack. Bitcoin, same way. You might be able to create a crypto, a crypto asset or cryptocurrency that has more intrinsic value to it. But the network effect of Bitcoin now is, is so wide that I think it's very hard to displace. So I, I very much in the camp that Bitcoin's role is digital gold or gold 2.0 in that today's world. I'm glad that you said that because that, that's probably one of the most prevalent questions that I get is how should we view um, Bitcoin? And you know, you, you're already talking about it being kind of a, a digital gold. Um, I, I like what you said there. It's a currency with commodity properties. So it's, it's kind of a, a hybrid of, of several different things that we could view it as. But I know that it, you know, Bitcoin has gotten really, really big, not just in popularity, but also just by the, the sheer size of it. Uh, I believe that I read a, a stat that the market cap of Bitcoin w- was over a trillion dollars. And uh, I think on your podcast, you, you had even referenced the fact that it would be uh, in line with the Mexican peso. So uh, it, it, it's really, really large. And I think if we looked at that from a standpoint of how large other companies are that we could compare it to, it, it's some pretty big names there. And I think that that would actually surprise some folks. Yeah, I was surprised too when I looked at it. I think it would be 20, around 20th largest currency in circulation if you viewed it as a currency. It's, as of yesterday, the Bitcoin market cap was around $950 billion. Uh, And by the way, the number two cryptocurrency is Ether, which is $184 billion. And then there's four others below that that are around 30 to 40 billion. So, but when you add up the top five cryptocurrencies, values around 1.3 trillion, of which again, Bitcoin's 950 of that. So by far the dominant and almost five and five times larger than the number two cryptocurrency. If you were to take that in relation to gold, uh, right now, approximately above gold that's held above ground 
is around 13 trillion, which so the Bitcoin right now has about 8% of the gold market cap. So in theory, if you were to say, okay, well, what if Bitcoin and gold's market cap went to, you know, was Perry, assuming gold's market cap stays the same, that puts a price on Bitcoin of about 620,000, which that's a, that's a, that's a big assumption, big runway, but I just want to share perspective. Yeah, Bit's about 8% right now. BTC is about 8% of the gold market cap. I, I would say this valuation is really hard to figure out what should the price of, of this crypto asset be. I, you know, you can use all sorts of different uh, valuation metrics around that side. Because if you think about it, it, you're telling me that Bitcoin should be 10, you know, 10 trillion, which that would move it into a top 10 currency. I don't know. That's hard for me to get my head around. It doesn't mean it can't happen. At this point, whether you use, some people use, you've heard the network valuation, which would be a Metcalf's law, which is sort of a square of the people in the network, or, or if you use, you know, the cost of production, you know, some people can use that for gold. I, who knows what the right valuation metric is? Right now, I think what it is, though, Without that intrinsic value, but with that network effect's pretty big, there is a supply-demand element. We know supply is pretty fixed, so you're just seeing that demand for that store of value really move. And I, and I think it's we'll, we'll see where it ends up in a year. On there's a part of me that feels Bitcoin could get cut in half. A part of me that feels it could triple in the next year or two. So, what do you make of some of the larger companies out there like Tesla? PayPal, they're starting to add Bitcoin to their portfolio. What do you think that says for the overall appetite um, for really cryptocurrencies in general um, beyond just kind of the the fans of, of Bitcoin? What do you think that says for the overall appetite as that as an actual investment? That's a good question. And, and how I thought about it was, all right, if I can't really place an intrinsic value on the particular asset, then we have to go to the, let's go to supply demand. And to me, you're seeing now institutional dollars come in, whether it be in a micro strategy, it was uh, putting a billion dollars of their corporate money into Bitcoin. You're seeing Tesla do the same thing. And I think for, for treasures, by the way, buying gold, it can be, it's, that's, Again, there's some awkwardness to, to gold as an asset class. For treasures, if, if you're going to hold reserves against store value, you can, yeah, I'll hold some dollars. I'll hold some euro. You know, I'll, I'll hold some real, depending on where your, where your revenues are. But Bitcoin, to me, it, it does make sense if you just say, all right, we're, we're going to hold, we're going to store value, our corporate cash in this. And you do some probabilities and say, all right, what we know is we know central banks are printing. Fiat currencies are increasing. Bitcoin supply is finite. And if I believe in this store of value thesis, then I'm fine putting some of my corporate cash in there. And it, it's it's not a we're not seeing we're not seeing traditional companies. You're not seeing, you know, 3M and and Dow Chemical and and you know, Chevron put their assets in them, but you're seeing obviously more companies that were born out of the millennia, right? The Teslas of the world put their money in this digital assets. So it tells me certainly it's the obvious conclusion is demand is, is increasing. It's starting to be institutionalized. I think what will be interesting is the result of that will be, might even be less volatility 
relative to what we saw two, three years ago, because you have a huge backstop in these institutional dollars, but you probably will end up getting higher correlations to other assets, as which we've seen over the past year with this. But it, it's certainly hard to argue as you're seeing these companies come in that the future price of uh, Bitcoin is going to be lower. Well, I know you had to break your your podcast up into two episodes just to to dive deep in, into cryptos, blockchains, and, and unfortunately, we're we're running short on time. That we'll have to condense this in, into just one episode. But I do want to end with with something fun. So. Let, let's gaze. Let's let's gaze into your crystal ball. Uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the future, and you, you said that you, you felt like you know blockchain was practical for for high frequency stuff and and you know larger volumes. Do you ever see a world where um, regular items like a, a car or office furniture, something like that, will cost uh, you know thirty thousand dollars, but 0.25 coins. Do you ever see uh, costs being associated with that so that people aren't having to convert a dollar to a coin, but it's actually just exchanging the coin because that's what the price is? Do you, do you ever see us getting there? Matt, not only do I see us getting there, I see it happening inside of that. And to use that internet comparison, you know, you and I were familiar with that, those internet stocks in the 90s. AOL, eBay, and Yahoo were three dominant players back then. They are they're not in the loop anymore. I mean, there's so what's now. Amazon, Google, Facebook, like it's, if you were, those platforms that are going to be built off of the blockchain to me, I, I don't have my head around, I, but I know that it's going to be really interesting to see. And mention the car. I think Tesla says they're going to take, you can buy a Tesla in Bitcoin within a year, sometime this year. So my guess is somebody will buy a Tesla with Bitcoin this year. It, it, it's it's absolutely yes. Well, I, I came into this episode thinking that I knew a decent amount, and um, you, you validated that. But you've also exposed just with your uh, comments about the the NFTs and the the integrity to the ledger and the structural transactions. You you you've really exposed that I now know how much I don't know, and, and it really kind of whets the appetite to to dig deeper. So. I appreciate you coming on the show and, and giving us uh, an overview of it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for thanks for having me, and uh, it's good for me to try and get my head around too. I'm, it's this is a fascinating, fascinating development. For more content from Dominic, you can subscribe to his podcast, Getting Credit, on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow Matt on LinkedIn and Twitter at Matt Rush SFP. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified as new episodes are released. And if you are interested in our firm or would like to contact Matt, check him out at strategicfinancialpartners.com.